Turn with me to Romans chapter 9, and we will get started there this morning. Now, I don't want to spend 20 minutes reviewing like I normally do. I want to kind of get into the, uh, the text this morning because i got a lot to cover. Um, but I do want to review. I do, I do want to ramp us back up to, to where we're at, what we've looked at, kind of where we're coming from. And if I could summarize this briefly, um, I would say this, that from the end of chapter 8 to the beginning of Romans chapter 9, Paul anticipated a confusion amongst largely Jewish people. He, he anticipated a confusion because if you look at the history of the church, we go all the way back to Acts 2, the church was 100% Jewish on that day. When Peter preached his sermon on the day of Pentecost, thousands of Jews responded. It was 100% Jewish. In fact, we don't see the first Gentile convert until eight chapters later in Acts 10 with Cornelius. But by the time Paul writes the book of Romans, that demographic had almost completely flipped. And by the time Paul is writing to the, to the Romans, the church is almost 100% Gentile. In fact, there's very few Jewish people responding to the gospel message. And so it, it, it begged this question, what happened to Israel? What, I mean, we've got 39 books in the Old Testament and Israel's the star player. Israel's like the main subject Everything centered and revolved around this nation, and God was patiently working with them all throughout the Old Testament. And as you finish up Romans chapter 8, and you see this, this exaltation about God keeping his promises, and God, you can't be separated from the love of God, Paul anticipates a confusion. Wait a minute, you got 39 books about this nation of Israel. Now they're not responding. It looks like they've somehow separated themselves from the love of God, that somehow God has rejected Israel. And so Paul is attuned to this complaint, probably because he spent a lot of time in synagogues, um, but also because he had a Jewish training. And I think he understood how he might feel if he didn't, hadn't understood the gospel. And so he's dealing with that. And what we're going to find in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is, is really simply a couple of truths, simple truths that are kind of big picture themes. And that is God has temporarily set aside the nation of Israel as his primary means of dispensing truth to the world. That is true. That's what's going on right now. That explains why many individual Israelites will not respond to the gospel. They do not believe that Jesus is their Messiah. And they've completely um, just written off everything regarding Jesus in the New Testament in general. The second thing is Paul wants us to know that he has not set aside the nation, the corporate nation. There were corporate unconditional promises given to the nation of Israel that God will one day fulfill. And you know, the good news about that for you and me is, well, who cares? I'm not a Jew. I'm not part of the nation of Israel. That's, that's great, John. You know, can you let me know when you're done with Romans 9, 10, and 11, and I'll just come back to church when you're done with that so I can get back to stuff that involves me. Here's how it involves you. If, if God doesn't keep his promises to Israel, how do you know he's going to keep his promises to you? See, this is, this is big. We, we've got a promise-keeping God we need to observe in this text. How is, how is all of this happening with the nation of Israel, and how does God intend to keep his promises? Because he made some unconditional promises. This is why this section is so important. And so last week, we looked at uh, really the first three verses, and we just saw that Paul had, a, had an incredible love for his countrymen, didn't he? In fact, how deep was his love? When we learn in verse 3, let's read it. He says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ. And remember that word means eternal damnation. He's talking about, I wish I could pay the penalty for their sins and go to hell if my countrymen could be saved. And he says, We're cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And so what Paul is going to do now, and he, and he does it like any skillful person that's putting together an argument. And, and what do you typically do when you're about to tell somebody that you disagree with them, or you're about to tell some, uh, something to somebody that you know they're not going to like? You typically affirm the, the common ground that you have. You, you typically affirm the common ground. That's what we're going to find in verses 4 through 5. Because what Paul is going to point out is, Yes, this is true, 
Yes, this is true about Israel. It's a unique nation above any nation that's ever existed. Yes, Israel has had more blessings than any other nation ever existed. Yes, there were unconditional made and unconditional promises made to the nation. But look at verse 6. What's, what does verse 6 start with? But. <laughs> and so that's why we've titled the sermon, Yeah, That's True, But. There's, there's an explanation. Yes, this is true. I'm not saying this is not true. And so he starts there in verses 4 through 5. And so, first of all, as we kind of look, I want to make a couple of just really quick contextual comments. And then let's start digging into this list of blessings. And so in verse 4, we read, Who are Israelites? To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. And so we'll look at each one of those here in verse 4. Um, but Paul is clarifying further who he's referring to as brethren in verse 3. I mean, we kind of knew who he was talking about. But this really, the text gives us a confirmation. He's talking about the Israelites, his, his physical brothers, the, the nation of Israel. Um, and then he's going to describe in these next two verses these eight exclusive blessings that they possess. And he, and he emphasizes the exclusivity of this. And you'll notice this by the, by the repeated definite article, the. Did you notice that as you read through verse 4? To whom pertain the adoption, or the if you like, I don't know who pronounces what, but the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, etc., etc. And so he's separating these blessings as unique blessings for the nation. And Paul's saying, I agree with this. I'm, I'm not disagreeing that our nation was set apart in a special and unique way in God's eyes. In fact, the scriptures refer to Israel as the apple of God's eyes. And that's, that's true. That will never cease from being true. And so Paul is acknowledging that here. The other thing I want to mention to you as an observation is that every pronoun here used in verses 4 and 5 are plural, not singular. Now, why do I mention that? Well, I'm going to keep building on that concept because even as we get into his further explanation of what he's talking about, I believe he's talking about the nation of Israel in chapter 9. In fact, I think he's talking about the, God's past dealings with the nation. And so he's going to keep plural. He's not talking about singular blessings here. He's saying this was true of the entire nation. He's talking about these unconditional national blessings that were promised to the nation of Israel uh, through one of the covenants that we're going to look at in more detail this morning, the Abrahamic covenant. These are unconditional blessings. How do we know it's unconditional? Well, we'll look at that this morning as well. And so uh, those are just some contextual comments just to observe as we're going through, because really quickly, if we don't keep this context in mind and we start getting down into verses 14 through the end of the chapter, we will immediately shift our interpretation to say this is, this is God talking about predestination and election of individuals to justification, and that the context is not dealing with that at all. That's not the context. In fact, many people will use Romans chapter 9 to teach individual election, individual predestination. But I'm, I'm trying to establish context right now so that when we get to that passage, you don't think I'm just making it up, that he's talking about the nation of Israel. You're going to see a consistency here. In fact, just think about the flow of the book of Romans. When did Paul deal with justification? We dealt with it in the first four and a half chapters of the book. And he has since moved on from that topic. So why would he come all the way back in chapter 9 and insert more about it in terms of clarifying what it's all about? It just doesn't fit the flow of the context. And that's what I'm trying to just kind of establish as we start working through here. And so here's, here's his uh, frame of argument. He's going to establish that these are eight blessings unique to the nation. And so let's just start working through those. The first blessing that we see in verse 4 is he says, to whom pertain the adoption. Now, the word adoption, and we talked about this in Romans 8, so I won't, I won't go into it in a lot of detail, but our concept of adoption today and the concept of Roman adoption were two different things. And I think we, we've talked about that and acknowledged that, but just to bring it up again, we typically in our day, we think about adopting kids that aren't our biological kids into our family. And so based on that concept of adoption modern day, many people will say, well, well we're adopted into the family of God. And, and they'll say, well, we're adopted into the family of God. And see, I would disagree with that statement. And he said, well, what are, you, what are you talking about? Why are you being so technical? Well, let me ask you a question. Let me pose it this way. Um, are you born again 
Are you born into the family of God or are you adopted in the family of God? See, when you put it that way, it's pretty clear because we've got John 3. It says you must be born again. And we're born into the family of God. So what is this adoption thing in the Roman culture? Well, again, without going into a lot of detail, um, it should conjure up images of heirship, being an heir and obtaining an inheritance. In fact, we know from Roman culture that Roman fathers adopted their own biological children. It wasn't how you got into the family. It was the fact that you were in the family and now you've obtained your inheritance. And we learn from Galatians 4, 1 through 7, that kids who were not adopted were treated just like slaves until they were adopted. Then they were the master of the household. They were the big shot on campus. They were the inheritors. And so when we we talk about national adoption here, we've got to understand that Israel was the only nation ever in the history of the world to ever be referred to as God's son, a, a firstborn with inheritance. And so we've got to understand that's unique to the nation of Israel. That's a, a national promise to the nation that they were God's adopted son entitled to an inheritance based on the promises he made to Abraham. And this was part of their thing. We, we see that in Exodus 4.22, and I'll just read that to you. It, even when Moses is um, getting ready to go speak to Pharaoh, God tells him, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And he's talking about national Israel. He's talking about the, the, the nation is his firstborn, his adopted son. And so part of that national adoption, not individual adoption, we, in fact, we looked at individual adoption in Romans 8, right? And, and you, remember, you remember how many believers were adopted or, or made a full heir? Every single one of us. Every single one who's put their faith in Jesus Christ has obtained the adoption. You are an inheritor. You have an inheritance reserved in heaven for you that cannot be touched, corrupted, defiled. It's there for you. Why? Because you're so good, right? Because you're living good, like you're, you're just having all good days now. You never make mistakes. No, because of the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, the work of Jesus Christ is so acceptable to God the Father that we learn in Ephesians 1 that God can predestine you to be adopted. He's guaranteed it. It's a guaranteed deal the moment you put your faith in Christ. There's no waiting period. There's no probation period for you as an individual to be adopted. But for the nation, what we see is their adoption included a couple of things that we find in the Abrahamic covenant. The promised land, that's part of their inheritance, The other thing that was part of their inheritance was that one day God was going to reign in the midst of them in an eternal kingdom, okay? And so this is what we're talking about when he says the adoption for the nation of Israel. Second blessing, you'll you'll follow with me in verse 4, the glory. What is he talking about there? Well, uh, I've got a picture of it. I just just fast-forwarded to it. My reverse button here doesn't work too well. So anyways, you can see the picture through through the fog um, but this is referring through the Shekinah glory, the, the very visible presence of God's presence with the nation, not only in the tabernacle during their wilderness wandering, but then when they built the permanent temple structure in Solomon's days um, during the period of monarchy. And this was a, a clear, visible sign that God was with them, that they were in fellowship with the Lord, that they were pleasing to him. In fact, what happened when this Shekinah glory left the temple, you know, Ichabod, right? The, the glory of the Lord has departed. And, and, and that was very important because it, it represented, it gave them a visible manifestation to know that the Lord was no longer with them, that they were out of fellowship with the Lord. Wouldn't you love today, if you were out of fellowship with the Lord, that you had some visible indication? Like maybe you're, you had a blue spot on your hand and then it wasn't there. You're like, oh man, I better get this right. You know, I better get back in fellowship with the Lord. There's, I'm out of fellowship. Well, the nation had that, and that was unique to that nation. They had the glory. It was a blessing to the nation. And again, no other nation had this uniquely blessed, visible manifestation. We move on to the third blessing, the covenants. And, and you know, what we see from the Old Testament is that God entered into precise contracts only with the nation of Israel. When he 
made a covenant. He made it with the nation. And, you know, we won't, we won't look at all the covenants. That's not the purpose of this section. But we will look at some that I think are going to impact our study going forward. You know, we, we talk about the Mosaic covenant. And we know about the Mosaic law. We know that it was given on Mount Sinai. It instituted a, a very detailed sacrificial system. It instituted really the civil uh, governing laws of the nation. Um, that was obviously one of the covenants. But it's not one that we're going to focus on this morning, um, what we want to look at here is what I would call the granddaddy of all the covenants, and that's the Abrahamic covenant. We find that in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And so turn with me to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Or flip your phone on and type it in. It's uh, the day and age we live in, right? So that's very convenient. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And we see that it reads this. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house. And and as we go through, I'm going to stop and just point these promises so that we can kind of build off of this. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And there's one. There's there's blessing involved in the Abrahamic covenant. Not only for Israel, we're going to see at the end of verse 3, also for the nations as well. Okay, But there's blessing there for Israel. And and make your name great, um, and you shall be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so what we, what we see from the Abrahamic covenant um, is a couple of things, but this is going to be the basis for all the other covenants that are given in the Old Testament. That's why I call it the granddaddy of it all. This is uh, the covenant that verifies God's contractual obligations to the nation. And so it was an everlasting, unconditional covenant. The way that we know that it was unconditional uh, between God and Abraham is because God ratified this covenant in Genesis chapter 15. Now, uh, without reading Genesis chapter 15, if I can give a summary, many of you know this story, but God made this promise again. He repeated the promise again to Abraham in Genesis 15 that, that his seed would be uh, innumerable. Like the sand, like the sand on the seashore. And then he told Abraham, hey, get, get some animals ready. We're going to ratify this covenant. And so this was a common way to ratify a covenant in Abraham's day. They would take animals, they would kill the animals, split them in half, and put them on separate sides and create an, a, an alleyway going through these animals. And typically, the way this covenant would work is if I was making a covenant, let's say with, with Carl, and we split the animals, and we would basically establish the, the commitments of the covenant. What was I committing to do, and what was Carl committing to do? And then we would say, we are committed to fulfill this covenant. And then as an illustration of how serious we were to ratify this covenant, he and I would, would either lock arms or hold hands and walk through the middle of these bloody animals. And you say, wow, that's, that's bloody, you know? That's, that's English, you know, English bloody. Um, but it was. And, and, and what it represented, what it illustrated really clearly was that it, it basically if I didn't fulfill my commitments to Carl, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And if Carl didn't fulfill his commitments to me, may what happened to these animals happen to Carl. That's how serious they were about ratifying the covenant. And so as we read on in Genesis 15, God comes down, he takes Abraham by the hand, and they both walk through the animals, right? No, that's not what happened <laughs> at all. In fact, what he did is he took Abraham and he put him to sleep. And God came down and he walked through the middle of the animals himself and said, you know what? The basis of fulfillment of this covenant's all on me. I'm going to take care of it. It's unconditional. And so Abraham woke up observed this, and he understood that God was determined to fulfill his promises in this covenant based solely on his character and on his word. And it had nothing to do with the faithfulness of Abraham. And you know, that's just a a beautiful picture of the Abrahamic covenant. See, Abraham wasn't resting on his obedience. He was resting on the faithfulness of God. He was resting on the promise of God. And in fact, if you see throughout the Old Testament, Jews referencing the Abrahamic covenant, that was their way of exhibiting faith 
in what God said he was going to do. They were walking by faith. They were trusting in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who made the promises, the one who went through the animals on his own and said, it's on my shoulders to keep this. It's on my back to fulfill this, and I'll get it done. And we know God gets things done. He takes care of things. And so that was his promise. And so when we look at this covenant, um, when we break it apart into really three different entities, this covenant promised land, seed, and it promised a blessing. Land, seed, and a blessing. And so what we find is really, and this will just be kind of a nice illustrative um, tool here, is what we find in the Abrahamic covenant um, is we've got this land promise. Well, later on, God is going to give more details about this land promise in a land covenant. We find that really in Deuteronomy 29 through 30. Uh, Some people will take it to verse 10, but you'll see him reaffirm this promise of land for the nation. And I believe he's just expanding on what he promised in Abraham. You know, he didn't overload Abraham with all the information at once. There was some progressive revelation that God was dealing out. We also see with the seed promise in the Abrahamic covenant, he further expands upon that um, in the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, where he promises that a descendant of David will sit on the throne to rule for eternity. And you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but you know, that's Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's awesome. So he promises back that to David all the way back in 2 Samuel. And then we see the third aspect of the Abrahamic covenant was blessing. And we find this portrayed and fulfilled or expanded upon in the new covenant that we find in Jeremiah 31. You know, we're going to do some study on a Sunday night soon. Probably, I say soon, probably next year, early next year. Um, <laughs> You see how my mind works? I, I, yeah, feel sorry for me. Feel sorry for Carrie, actually. But, but we're going to do some study on the new covenant because I believe there's a lot of confusion surrounding the new covenant. But if, but if we're going to commit ourselves to a normal, literal, grammatical, contextual, hermeneutic, or Bible study method, when you read Jeremiah 31, 31, who's the covenant made with? Well, it's made with the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. And so many times as a church, we start to insert our, our way into this. And it's, and it's okay. We don't, we don't need the promises of the new covenant um, to, to have the promises that God has made to us directly as a church. It's, it's great that it's there, but understand that that was a covenant made with the nation of Israel. And again, that's the teaser for next year, if you can even remember. Uh, you'll sleep a few times since then. But um, So what is the land covenant? Let's just kind of work through this. Deuteronomy 31 and through 8. Again, it's a further expansion of the land promise and the Abrahamic covenant. And, and think about it. In order to have a nation, one of the musts is you've got to have a land. You know, there's probably wackos walking around this world that said, yeah, I'm my own sovereign nation. And it's, where's your land, dude? You know, like you can't you can just say your house is your nation, you know. So, so typically when you have a nation, there's a land. And so within the, the land covenant, God expanded and said, here's the land that I'm going to give to you. And that all started back in the Abrahamic covenant when he said, get to a land that I will show you. And so he further expands upon that. And this is one of the covenants I believe he's referring to here in Romans 9. Uh, again, God has given uh, Israel unconditional ownership of a vast stretch of land from Egypt to the Euphrates River. They own it. They've got the eternal right. They've got the title deed. It's, it's their land. It's based on the promise given in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, it doesn't mean that they're always going to occupy the land, right? We even see that in the, in the Old Testament. What happens when they're not walking faithfully to the Lord? Well, they're exiled. But, but even if you're studying through the book of Jeremiah on, in Sunday school on Sunday morning, what, the promise is there, what? For restoration back to the land. God's going to bring them back. And then we see uh, after the destruction of the temple in, in 70 AD that the, that the Jews were dispersed. But there's also this promise that he's going to bring them back and fulfill this promise, this land promise that's, again, further expanded upon outside of the Abrahamic covenant. We see the seed promise. Again, further expansion of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, in order to have a nation, um, you've got to have people, right? So, so Genesis 15, we see this, the seed is innumerable uh, as the sand on the seashore. But there's also a, a singular seed that God was pointing to in the Abrahamic covenant. And that's one of the greatest uh, things that we have recorded in the history of mankind. That person was Jesus Christ. And Luke 1 puts it just so succinctly. Let me read this. 
to you as we're just kind of making these connections. Luke chapter 1, um, verses uh, 30 through 33. So the, the, the angel said to her, speaking to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. See, that's a direct reference back to the Davidic covenant, which is a further expansion of the Abrahamic covenant. And so you'll see even in the New Testament, we're making ties back to this covenant. And this is going to be very important as we continue on in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So it won't be the last time uh, we go over this. We also see this, this promise of blessing. We find this further explained in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. And what's involved in the new covenant? Well, God has promised to forgive Israel's sins. Now, why can God promise Israel that their sins can be forgiven? Because their Messiah died for their sins. And he rose from the dead. God accepted his sacrifice on behalf of the nation of Israel and their sins. That's why he can forgive their sins on the basis of the new covenant. We also see that in the new covenant, God will write his laws on his people's heart. And this is going to, uh, again, I believe this is going to happen during the millennial kingdom. And that's why during the millennial kingdom, you'll find passages in the new covenant that says, that's why no man will have to teach his neighbor, know the Lord, for they will all know him. I mean, imagine having like the, the you know, we, we always joke, right? Wouldn't it be cool to have like the Bible, like just downloaded and you just like, you just download it and you own it all, you know it all, you quote it all. That's basically what's going to happen to the nation of Israel, during the millennial kingdom. I mean, I'm oversimplifying that, but God is going to write his laws on their heart and they're all going to know him. That's it. That's just an incredible blessing. We also see that they are going to receive the blessing of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which they did not have in the Old Testament. It was, he was temporarily came on to people and then removed himself and then temporarily came on. They're going to have a permanent indwelling Holy Spirit, just like the church does today just like believers do in Jesus Christ today. But that awaits them in the future in the fulfillment of this new covenant blessing. And again, I believe this will all happen in the millennial kingdom. And that uh, we see even at the end of the, the new covenant, verses 35 and 36 of Jeremiah, that uh, it says that their seed will remain forever. So is God through with the nation of Israel? I mean, just based on the covenant promises, no way. That's why Paul's going over this. Hey, I agree with you. God's got a plan for the nation. He's not rejecting them, but, it, but let me explain what is happening. And that's why he, he has the but in verse 6 of Romans 9. So uh, if you have somehow turned out of Romans 9, which you may have, let's turn back there and let's get back uh, to that text a little bit more. So uh, as a brief summary, again, it's all up here at the same time, Abrahamic covenant, land seed blessing, Land covenant further expanded upon in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. Seed covenant further expanded upon in the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. And then the new covenant further expands upon the blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant found in Jeremiah 31. Okay, And so when he talks about they received covenants, that was a big deal. There were some big promises in there. And I'm talking about worldview promises, like God taking, uh, explaining his plan through the ages type promises found all the way back in Genesis 12. And again, as I mentioned, I believe all of these expanded aspects of this covenant will be completely and finally fulfilled during the millennial kingdom. The nation for the first time will possess the full allotment of land that was promised to them. Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, will actually be reigning from David's throne in Jerusalem, which was promised to them in the seed covenant. And the nation will finally experience the full blessing of being in fellowship with the Lord and also all of the extra blessings promised to him in the new covenant. That will all come together um, at that point in time. So the fourth, fourth blessing, the law. Uh, we see that also in verse four, the giving of the law. We see that God entrusted his law. We know that from the Old Testament, entrusted his law to the nation of Israel for, for safekeeping and for practice. Um, the other thing that he accomplished through the giving of the law is he revealed himself. No, no other nation had a knowledge of God like the nation of Israel did. In fact, that knowledge should have put them so far ahead of every other Gentile pagan nation out there. And yet we find that even with all of that knowledge, many times they still didn't understand. They still didn't walk by faith. 
Um, They still rejected God for other pagan idols. We see even in Joshua 2 um, that Rahab understood the Lord's power and what he could accomplish in their land more than even the Israelites who had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. She basically said to the, to the spies, where have y'all been for 40 years? Like we've been shaking in our boots, <laughs> waiting for you. And where were they at? Well, they were back giving a bad report. At least 10 of them were, man, these guys are big. They're fortified. We can't take them. Let's not go in. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back into slavery. And so even in that sense, the, the knowledge of the giving of the law was not uh, beneficial to them because they didn't mix it with faith. Uh, but they did get an incredible understanding of the God of the universe, the God who created everything, an understanding of his character. And so that nation alone received the law. Fifth blessing. We see the service of God, and this word service comes from the verb latruo. It just means to worship. And so we talk about service here. We're talking about the service involved in the worship of God, specifically the tabernacle and temple worship of the priests of Israel. It was very elaborate worship system with, with priests doing different roles, the high priest functioning, uh, et cetera. And so it was a unique and special privilege, um, not only representing God's presence among them, but also providing access, albeit, I, I put, albeit limited, but access to the God who created everything, the, the judge of the world, the one who established how you could be made righteous in his sight, how you could be made acceptable. They had access to him through this service. And so that was a unique blessing. In fact, we learned from the Old Testament that if a Gentile wanted to worship the Israelite God, what it was the first step? Well, they had to become a proselyte to, the, to, the, to, to Judaism. And they began to partake as strangers as part of these rites approaching their God in the same way they did. And so it was kind of come to Judaism to get exposed to the truth of God. And Israel was designed to be that shining light to, to Gentile nations, you know, how could a nation, how could a nation take one day off a week in farming and still have the best bumper crop out of anybody around? I know we've got some people that have in here that have grown up on farms, did some farming. And, and let's just say that, that farming is not a nine to five job. Anybody that's ever been around a farmer, in fact, it's not a six day a week job. It's seven days a week. Because even if you don't have stuff going on with the crops, you inevitably are fixing equipment. That's, that's like a 24-7 job. It's just keeping your equipment running, right? And so in, in this sense that, you know, they had animals to take care of. They had plows to sharpen. They had crops to, to pick out of the ground when harvest was ripe. And yet every sixth day, they just were designed to rest at home. And it was designed to be a testimony to the Gentile nations of the way their God cared for them. And it was designed to, to draw Gentiles to their God. Well, of course, that uh, didn't happen. Let's just say that didn't happen too often, as we see from the history. But again, only this nation had this blessing. Sixth blessing. They had the promises. And again, um, without going into a lot of detail, each one of these could probably be their own sermon. But it refers to the promises made to the patriarchs, this, this reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant, as you see through the book of Genesis and through the Old Testament, also this promise of the Messiah. You remember where the first promise of the Messiah was in the entire Bible? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And so they, they were given this promise. And, and we read in John 8 that Abraham, Jesus said of Abraham, he looked forward to seeing my day. He was looking forward to this promised Messiah. And so these promises were made directly to and connected with Father Abraham, of, of which we see in the seventh blessing of whom are the fathers. So each Israelite could trace their lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, And all three of these men were chosen by God and loved by the nation. Now, here's the issue, okay? Let's kind of make a transition before we get to the eighth blessing. Um, To the faithful Jew who had banked on all these promises and uniqueness that Paul is describing, Paul's agreeing with, to that faithful Jew out there, it appears to them, while Paul's writing this, that those promises have failed. That it's no longer coming true because Israel's not even the main player anymore. The Gentiles are. And where did that come from? That, that's just coming from out of left field to, to the Jewish mindset. And so just imagine if, if, if you grew up watching a fa- your favorite basketball team 
okay? And let's just say, let's just use a name that most people recognize. Let's say you grew up watching Michael Jordan, which I had the privilege of growing up watching Michael Jordan. My brother would take the old, the old beta, beta machine, right? And slip the recording in there and he would record Chicago Bulls game and then we would wake up the next day and just watch every single play just so we could watch Michael Jordan. But you know, Michael Jordan was a star player. Many people think he's the greatest player of all time. And so imagine your horror if you showed up to a Chicago Bulls game to watch Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan was sitting on the bench, fully dressed, ready to play, got his gym shorts on, his gym shoes, all he's ready to go. And, and not only is he not playing, but the former ball boy and water boy is now playing in his place. Wouldn't you be like, wait a minute, what? what's going on? This doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. And so for the Jew, they're thinking, wait a minute, we've been the star player. We, we've been the apple of God's eyes. Why is the water boy, why is the dogs, the scum of the earth, these Gentiles, why are they now in a place of privileged position. And so you can see why there's this tension that Paul is recognizing that he's trying to, to deal with here. And so he goes on to this eighth blessing, and this is how he begins to introduce, uh, I believe, his, his explanation. And he says this, they are also unique because verse five tells us from whom, speaking of the patriarch, speaking of the nation, according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all the eternal blessed God. Amen. And do you know that every Jew that was reading just this verse, they could say a hearty amen to this? Because Paul didn't say Jesus here, did he? He, he didn't identify Jesus as the Christ. In fact, one of the things that our English translators did to, to help with the flow of this verse is they removed the word the that's there to distinguish Christ here. So if we, if we just read it uh, literally from the Greek, it would be from whom, according to the flesh, the Christ came, the Messiah, their promised deliverer, who is overall, and every Jew, everything that Paul has just said, they could say a hearty amen to. Those were the unique blessings of the nation. Now, what they're going to disagree with and what many Jews of Paul's day disagreed with is Paul could talk about the Christ all he wanted. He could go to the Old Testament and show that the Christ had to die. He could go to the Old Testament and show that the Christ had to suffer. He could go to the Old Testament and show how the Christ had to raise again from the dead. And the Jews would say, wow, that's cool. I've, I've, I've seen that. I didn't realize that. Thank you for helping me see that. And he says, and by the way, the Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. And then that's when all heaven broke loose or all hell broke loose, depending on how the response went. And so that was the point where he identified this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth is this Christ that was promised. But they're okay, generically speaking, about Christ. You know, we've said many times that Christ was not Jesus' last name. You know, it, was a, it was a formal title um, given to the Messiah. And so we see not only could Israel trace their physical lineage back to these patriarchs, but guess who else could trace his physical, earthly, fleshly lineage back to these patriarchs? Jesus Christ himself. And we see that in the genealogy of Matthew 1. Uh, we know that Christ was a descendant of King David. Again, going back to that Davidic covenant. He was of the tribe of Judah. He was a son of, who was the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And we see that direct connection all the way back to these patriarchs from a human side. And then from a divine side, we see that he's overall. So Christ wasn't just some descendant. He wasn't just some physical descendant. He was actually overall. And so it emphasizes the divine side as well. In fact, we see that early on in Romans 1. Um, you know, I think we were in Romans 1 a couple weeks ago, I think. Um, <laughs> just kidding. A couple months ago. Um, but in Romans 1, 3, he says, Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. There's that human side. But verse 4 he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so we see that, that, that uniqueness of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And, and, and even the Jewish uh, people here who were having trouble with Paul's argument would recognize that the Christ was going to be unique in this way. He was going to have some uniqueness in this way. And so we see probably one of the most comprehensive statements of Christ's deity in the New Testament, right here in Romans 
9.5. Now, the Jew would not agree that this was speaking of Jesus, but they would agree that it was speaking of their Messiah. But notice how Christ is referred to. He's the eternally blessed God. The eternally blessed God. And so he adds emphatically that Christ, although human, a human seed from the patriarchs is truly God. And so for those that will claim that Jesus never claimed to be deity or the Bible doesn't say that Jesus is God, here's a great verse to show that the Bible does claim he's God. And, and, and it kind of brings to the forefront. Now, now you have truth to deal with. You. <laughs> do you believe that or do you reject that? But it does make that claim. And this is just one example of that claim. And then he says, amen. He ends verse 5 with an amen. And it's got this emphasis of, uh, and this is true and certain. Paul is, Paul is saying all of these things, and, and they are true. Let me assure you that these are true. They're confirmed. They're certain. It's not just his way of finishing off, you know, like we do sometimes a prayer. And it's just like the last word you say before everyone opens their eyes kind of thing. You know, there was some purpose to this word. And he was just affirming that everything he had said was legit and true. And so why did Paul go through this list? Right? We get to verse 6, he says, but let me, let me kind of read you a, a transition from a commentator. I think it's, it's just well written. I couldn't say it any better myself, and so I'm just going to read it. And, and, and as, as he's leading into verse 6, this is what the commentator said. So what did Israel do with all these benefits? Did they take advantage of their advantages? Were they blessed by their blessings? Did they benefit from all their benefits? Real wordsmith there. You see how he's putting that together. And then he says, herein lies the tragedy. Though there were godly exceptions, he names a few, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David, Daniel, Jeremiah, etc. The nation, for the most part, did not take advantage of what they had. Instead, they, and I want you to put your finger in verse 4 and look at the, the word adoption. And I just want you to move through these blessings with me. So instead of recognizing their adoption, they dishonor and despise God as their father. Number two, instead of the glory, they they place no value on the presence of God in their midst. Three, they lost sight of God's covenant commitments. Four, they broke God's law, even though they received it. Five, their worship lost its reality and became an empty ritual. Six, the great promises were not mixed with faith. Seven, they did not follow in the steps of faithful Abraham who believed God. And eight, what did they do with the Christ who is overall? They crucified him. And so you see these, these eight covenant blessings they didn't take advantage of. In fact, they went about as far away as, as they could go from these covenant in terms of rejecting as a nation. Now, there were godly exceptions, like I mentioned. There were individuals who were responding to these blessings, but as a nation, they were rejecting. And so... That's Paul's question. So what happened? Right? That's, that's what we're going to get into in verse 6. So what happened to the nation? Why are they not responding? They've got all of these privileges. Why aren't, why aren't they still the apple of God's eye? Why, why isn't it God still working with the primary player of the nation of Israel? And that's what we're about to, to find out. That's what Paul is trying to explain. And it's not because God has broken his promises. That's not the answer. And that's what the Jews of Paul's day were assuming. And so in verse 6, we see that with all these blessings mentioned in verses 4 through 5, the question becomes, what, what happened to them? Did God turn his back on them? Did, is God reneging on his promises? Is he backing away from what he promises to do? In fact, when they, they understood Paul's message, Paul's message was clear. Those who reject Jesus Christ will be damned to an eternal condemnation in hell. And so the Jews saying, well, wait a minute. How can, if I reject Christ and I'm damned to hell and I've got all these national promises, how do those two things jive together? They seem to contradict one another. And see, this is the tension that Paul is dealing with here. And this is the question that he's asking. And so he says, has the word of God taken no effect? It means to fall off from or metaphorically means to fall away or to fail, to be in vain. Did God's word... Um, fail. In fact, there's, there's a paradox created by recognizing all these unique blessings and recognizing the outcome of Paul's message if you reject Christ. And the paradox is this, uh, either Paul's gospel's not true, or if it is true, 
then God's promises have obviously failed. Because if, if Jews can be condemned to an eternity in hell, then how is God fulfilling his promises to Abraham? You, you see what he's dealing with there? It's really, it's a subtle thing that maybe many Gentiles might not understand, but that was the forefront of the Jewish thinking of the day. And this is what they were struggling with. This is what they were struggling with as it related to this, this, um, this message that Paul was preaching, the exclusivity of it. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ or you will face judgment. You will face the penalty for your own sins. And so they were trying to make sense of this. And so Paul makes it clear here that, that God's word is not taken, uh, has taken effect. It's, it's not that it has taken no effect. In fact, it's not happened in the past, nor does it represent the current state of affairs either. He uses a perfect tense there. So God never fails to keep his promises. So why can Paul say this with confidence? Well, that's what we're going to get at the end of verse 6. Let's read it. So he says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. But notice that word for. So now he's explaining what he just said. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Okay, so they're not all Israel who are of Israel. What is he talking about? You know, what does he mean by that? Well, I think what he's doing here, and I think it is it'll play out in his explanation. He's making a distinguishing comment between natural descendants of Abraham when he says of or out of Israel, ethnic Israel, you might say, and those who are spiritual descendants of Abraham. In other words, those who are of the faith of their father Abraham. There's a distinction there. Now, every Jew that, that is physically related to Abraham could claim that they're part of ethnic Israel. But Paul, what Paul is saying that is within, within national Israel, Individual Israelites had to respond by faith to Jesus Christ to be considered true Israel, to be considered a true son of Abraham. That's what he's saying here. In fact, this should not have been um, new, uh, I don't think, to the Jews. There were, as we looked uh, and mentioned earlier in the Old Testament, there were godly exceptions. But as we saw, the nation as a whole dishonored God and rejected him. Not only did they reject him, they rejected his messengers, the prophets, and ultimately they rejected his Messiah. And you know, and I think we would agree that not all of ethnic Israel in the Old Testament was saved. Would you agree with that statement? Those of you that have studied the Old Testament, in fact, if not, come to our study on Jeremiah on Sunday school and see what those Israelites were doing. They weren't, they weren't saved. They weren't even saved. Now they were ethnic Israel. They could claim I'm a son of Abraham. They could say I'm circumcised. They could say I'm keeping the law. In fact, while they're keeping the law, in Jeremiah's day, they're, 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 they're working that into their schedule along with sacrificing their infants up on the hill to Molech. They were doing all sorts of stuff, breaking God's law. Not all Israelites are saved, and that's the distinction that Paul is making here. And so I believe he's saying that a true Israelite is a believing Jew. And that's true even in the Old Testament. Uh, a, believing, a Jew had to believe in order to become righteous, to have righteousness credited to their account. Now, as we were studying through Romans all the way back in chapter four, remember Paul, Paul was saying, this isn't something new. In fact, this is how Abraham was made righteous. Remember he gave Abraham as an example. He said, this is how David was made righteous. He gave David as an example. And what he's saying is here that nobody goes to heaven based on their good works or their ability to keep their religion. People go to heaven when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, and then righteousness is credited to their account, and that's what we're talking about here. One must be born again, and you know, it, it's an interesting discussion, and we'll reference this again, but you know, in John 3, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and, and he tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is blown away, isn't he? He's like, what? I got to enter my mother's womb and be reborn? What are you talking about? And you know, Jesus says something really startling in verse 10, and, and, I, and I won't, for time, I won't turn to it, or, but I'm going to quote it, uh, or at least give you the gist. And that is, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the nation of Israel, and you don't know these things? Implying that Nicodemus should have known that the Old Testament taught the same concept. And, you know, it's one of those things as you, you look at the Gospels and you look at the book of Acts, this is what was one of the major confusions of national ethic Israelite in Paul's day. This was one of the major confusions. They thought they were saved, uh, a saved Jew, simply because they were an ethnic child of Abraham. That's what they thought. I'm Abraham's son, I'm in. 
I'm circumcised, I'm in. I can trace my genealogy all the way back to the patriarchs, I'm in. And so that's why John's message, John the Baptist's message in the gospel is repent, right? Change your mind. Change your mind about what? About your entrance into the kingdom. You're not getting in because you're just Abraham's ethnic child. In fact, we get a a further insight in Acts uh, 19 as, as Paul is explaining to some of the John the Baptist's disciples what John the Baptist's message was. It was stop trusting in your way to get to heaven and trust in the one who's coming after me, Jesus Christ. That's how you get to heaven. You see John tell in Matthew 3, 9, he tells a group of Pharisees, if God wanted to raise children up to Abraham, he could do it from these stones. It's not about being an ethnic child of Abraham. And that's what Paul is saying here. I believe in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. See, they thought they were going to benefit from all of God's promises to the nation simply because of their physical ethnicity but they too needed to be born again. They needed to be born again to enjoy the promises made to the nation. In other words, national promises, only individual Israelites who respond to the Messiah will enjoy those national promises. And so he's gonna give us this proof as we go forward next week. In fact, do you know that not all children of Abraham were saved? And he can prove it from the Old Testament. Anyone ever heard of Ishmael? Everyone ever heard of the six other sons that Abraham had with Keturah? There's lots of sons of Abraham that weren't saved. And so he's going to start using that uh, as proof next week. And so why don't we, we'll tie a bow in it right there and we'll pick up here next week. Um, as I go to, uh, to pray, we're going to, we, we mixed up the, the order of the service today. Um, and so we're going to ask the ushers to come forward as we Uh, prepare to take our offering as I close uh, with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you uh, for your word. And Lord, as we look at some of these, uh, this this historical uh, references to your nation, uh, we realize that at times it, it seems so far away and so distant from where we live our daily lives. And so I pray that you would um, use your word. We realize from 2 Timothy 3 that um, all of your, your word uh, that we have in front of us is inspired by you, and it's profitable. And so, Lord, I, take that you would, I, I just pray that you would take what we're studying here in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Lord, and that you would make it practically profitable to each person in this room, that they would benefit from it, that they would see and understand more of your character, uh, more of, of who you are and the, and the great lengths uh, to which you love us, through this section. And so I just pray that you would make uh, the passage very real and pertinent to us uh, as we go about our daily lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.